There are a lot of ways that consumers can be led astray or manipulated online. This is Click to Trust, a podcast that delves into the intricate challenges of protecting online communities. Last time on Click to Trust, we examined existing online regulations to better understand the possible impacts that the Digital Services Act may have when it comes into effect. In this episode, we're looking into the future to find out how artificial intelligence may shake up this global trend toward a more regulated online experience. We'll start with Scott Pansing. Scott has worked in interactive production, advertising operations, and policy communications at companies like Capital Records, The Walt Disney Company, and Google. Lately, he's been involved with a local nonprofit in LA called AILA, which seeks to transform the greater Los Angeles region into a hub for responsible AI research, development, and application. We can't talk about online regulations without talking about AI, specifically AI-generated content. At the time of this podcast recording, it's been about two weeks since the EU AI Act was announced, making Europe the first ever jurisdiction to propose specific rules for the development and use of AI. How these rules shape up and how they are enforced will have a major impact on future developments and the safety of this technology and of its users, of course. There is a whole spectrum of opinions on this, with some people calling for no regulation and others calling for really strict measures. It's getting political, as it always does. So I decided to invite Scott Pansing to this conversation, and he was kind enough to say yes. Scott has worked in interactive production, advertising operations, and policy communications at companies like Capital Records, The Walt Disney Company, and Google. Lately, he's been involved with a local nonprofit in Los Angeles called AILA, which seeks to transform the greater Los Angeles region into a hub for responsible AI research, development, and application. He also has his own podcast called AI Quick Bits, which focuses on the safety policies and ethical and ethics of artificial intelligence. Hi, Scott. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you so much for saying yes to this. Scott, let's jump right into it. What's your stance when it comes to online regulations? We've been talking about the Digital Services Act and the Online Safety Bill, which are both set in Europe. And you sit on the other side of the pond, as they say. What's the view from... What's the view like from there? At Google, I worked for a couple of years in policy communications and did trust and safety. How do I feel about it? I feel strongly that like several other sectors, like the online sector, should have um, some sensible regulation. Europe, in general, I think has a tradition of uh, leading in privacy and sort of consumer rights, and that can be that sometimes that, I mean, I'm also in California. So in the United States, California is also very much a leader in the States as far as, as far as privacy. And then there's of course the DSA in Europe and basically, yeah, there are a lot of ways that consumers can be led astray or manipulated online, like in several other, and not online, but yeah, it's very important. AI in terms of online regulations, Obviously, there's this new AI regulation emerging, which is which some people think is great. Others don't think it's so great. It's really a delicate topic. Do you agree with that? I do. Well, it's a delicate topic, but also there's, I think there's a really ambiguous area where people are just trying to figure out what's going on and what is this. And then there is a more known or mature area, which I think like the the AI Act, I think, is a bit of an extension on the, the Digital Services Act in that the Digital Services Act, and I'm sure you have other guests that you'll go a lot deeper into this, but essentially, you know, it's about protecting fundamental rights and protection of children, privacy, things like surveillance. And so when you get into the AI Act, which to my knowledge, Europe actually had some AI regulation already moving before the kind of generative AI, chat GPT, mid-journey thing. So that's why this was able to kind of move quickly for regulation. So to my knowledge, what I've, what I've read about the, the AI Act, you know, there is a lot of protections around surveillance, facial recognition, 
things of that nature, which are in line with the traditions of Europe, like I said, with, with privacy, that's important. And you've also got that facial recognition gets into like biometric identification and all sorts of things that the, um, that are basically about, about rights of, of consumers. So that part I think is a little more established and good. And that's a little, that that's, I don't want to say that's much more determined than a lot of the other things like, so for example, also in the AI Act, they have, which is a good thing. They have like this sort of risk levels for different models. And if something is considered like high risk, that there's more regulation, but some of these things that they have in there, like, well, then at this point, if it's, if it's a certain level of risk, then we want to, we want to see, we want to reverse engineer your model. Like you have to, we have to, you have to open up what many companies look at is very proprietary and secret information. And a lot of times the, the training and whatnot has gone on for with such a huge amount of compute power and data that they maybe through all these sequential learning and predictive models don't necessarily know really what's in it at, at this point down the road, uh, which is very interesting to see how a regulator might. I don't know that they'll be able to work out, show us everything in your model now, private company, capitalism, et cetera. Another thing that I think is very relevant to regulation of AI is Basically, there's a lot of open source AI out there as opposed to like closed source models from Microsoft or Google. There's a ton of open source material that, that people that know how can download and they don't have, they, don't, they can take guardrails off of it. They can do, and very hard to regulate in, in an open source world. So that also gets into trust and safety and guardrails. There's a big philosophical area that we're wading into of like, if this is a tool, where should the onus really lie as far as how you use it? Knife can be used to do very productive things and you can also murder someone with it. Should the onus be on the maker of the tool or the person using the tool? That's a huge question. So yeah, copyright is another big one. We can get to that too, but Anyway, my point uh, to, to sum up here for a little bit is that the, the different, there's different areas of the AI Act and some of the ones that focus more on consumer safety and privacy and surveillance, I think are a little bit more buttoned up and good and will have more teeth. And then the ones that are a little bit more about what's inside your model, if you're a certain level of risk and dealing and how are you going to deal with the open source question, I think that's, there's a lot more to be done there or a lot more even just to work out, like how would you mm -hmm. regulate? not just that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's almost like that we've figured out the front end, like in terms of regulation, it's more straightforward. The back end, obviously, like all the information that gets fed to the machines is a bit more difficult to regulate. And there have been a few headlines circulating about that, about yes. the type of content being fed might be full on plagiarized or even there's been sexual, child sexual abuse content being fed to Gen AI models. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think what's interesting is that, okay, for almost all of 2023, the way that this, the generative AI and these new, whether it's generative pre-trained transformer, I believe is what GBT stands for. And all of these models that are creating things, mid-journey, stable diffusion. The idea was, hey, we scraped the web. They would say that. So, okay, yes, there's copyright mm -hmm. material, intellectual property, but the way it was essentially framed, everyone using these tools and to people raising copyright and intellectual property concerns was that data is not in the model. So it's not a perfect analogy, but essentially like if you walk into a museum all day and you don't take any photos, but you just experience artwork and then you walk out, you can draw on your experience and create things, but you didn't take photographs. You didn't take the data with you. So that was the argument. Hey, there's no intellectual property concern here. There's hundreds of lawsuits, right? That are there in play right now about intellectual property copyright with, with AI. Many of them saying like, you you used copywritten material, now you're charging money for your service, this is bad. So they were saying, we don't, the, the training data is not in the model. Well, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, 
actually some Google researchers discovered, like they essentially told ChatGPT to repeat the same word over and over and over again, lawyer or poet or business or whatever. And ChatGPT would go, okay, business, 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 you know, for maybe 10, 20 seconds. And then after a while, it would, and I don't really like the term hallucinate, but it would start to get, you know, it would start to do that. It would start to go off on a tangent. And then all of a sudden they discovered, oh, it's spitting out random training data. PII, a personally identifiable inter information for lawyers when they had it say the word lawyer over and over. All of a sudden, it's like a name and an address and a phone number of a lawyer. So they kind of, this this paper kind of blew the door off. Like, wait, you're, you said the training data wasn't in the model, but like here we're exposing training data over and over again. So that I suspect you know, I'm not a lawyer, but optics, I know, play a big role in a lot of these things. And I don't think the optics of, of that are necessarily great towards the argument that I laid out before. So I suspect that that paper will be referenced a lot in plenty of these uh, lawsuits coming up in, in 2024. You mentioned um, CSAM or child sexual abuse material uh, being present. So now that we've, let's say we've established that actually training data is in the model, whether it is or not, we, they, uh, they, meaning all the people that made these models, like I said, they were like, yes, it, the, the internet was scraped to, to train, to find training data. Sadly, the reality is you don't need to go to the dark web or whatever to encounter the CSAM. And they apparently, and this is basically the stable diffusion model, right? This is the model that has powered Midjourney and plenty of other image generation tools. And and I've only read a bit about it, but you know, they took um measures to to try to ensure that CSAM was not included in the training data. But it turns out again, some researchers figured out by nature of there's like a hashing algorithm, I guess, that you can use to like, you know, the researchers at Stanford weren't even which is a good thing, you know, legally permitted to view CSAM. But in the research you can do, I believe certain entities provide hashing algorithms that you can use to find a match of known CSAM material that's out there. And they did find some. Apparently, the models have been taken down, like on Hugging Face or other areas where I think it's Hugging Face that hosts the model. And it's down until they can't guarantee that, that this is taken care of. But um, these are all... Uh, this is all like really fresh news. I feel like this this was just a couple of days ago about the child sexual abuse material. Um, and then it was only about three or four weeks ago that that paper came out where they had ChatGPT repeat the same word over and over again to reveal training data. Yeah, this is all changing very quickly as it has been all year with generative AI. And uh, we'll see where it goes. It's getting kind of crazy. It's not even just AI. It's... Uh... The algorithm, I, I saw an article a couple of weeks ago, I think it was The Verge, I'll, I'll drop the link here, but about how they went on Instagram, they created some, the journalists created an account basically and started liking content from like teenage Olympians, like specific content. And then the algorithm kept feeding even worse content to unreals to that person. Yeah. So it's, do we need to look, it feels like we need to look under the hood to understand what's going on to create some sort of limit, some barriers, implement some laws, if people agree with that or not, but it's such a challenge. Do you think, do you think there's anything we can take from real world laws and apply it here? Or are we going to have to create like a whole new set of regulations? That's a great question. And a lot of governments are dealing with that right now. You do have kind of a Venn diagram of, of countries where there are plenty of countries that, that are saying we're going to leverage existing laws on the books to to deal with, and we can deal with a lot of these new AI products moving forward. There are governments creating new frameworks and laws like we've discussed. And then there are, there's another set that's sort of just as banning the products. Italy banned ChatGPT for a certain time. China, you have some some countries that are just kind of like, well, this doesn't, it's not going to fly. And then you have kind of a combination, like some countries are like using existing laws and making new frameworks like the United States and Europe. So um, yes, existing laws should definitely be leveraged in the 
just in the sake of time. I mean, it takes time to like pass all these laws and compromise. And like you said, it's very political. Yeah, it's necessary. I think when you're talking about like social algorithms, pre-generative AI, I mean, what you're getting into is basically automated systems that optimize for time spent, engagement, less churn, all of these things that are essentially to increase sales. I think where that has an interesting intersection with generative AI is that so what I, there's so many different areas that I think AI has like a societal or ethical aspect. But one area that I think is really interesting to me is so humans have a tendency to, to attribute like human qualities or lifelike qualities to machines, anthropomorphism, right? I mean, people name their car, people, people just have a tendency to do that. And I believe that it's sort of like understandable or not a surprise that companies would say, well, how do we, how would we get people to do spend more time with our product, reduce churn, all of those things? Well, if we can make them feel like it's their buddy or their mentor or their lover or whatnot, then that will keep them on the product more. Okay. It, there's a, it should definitely be looked at, right? There's a line there where you're exploring loneliness or and then not to get too crazy, I'm going to go there because like yesterday, sci-fi is not, is not sometimes becomes reality, right? Not always, but there's a, there's actually a, a pretty interesting book by, it's called The Battle for Your Brain. Uh, the author is Nita Arahani and essentially, and I'm going to, I won't do it justice, check out the book, but I'll set it up just by saying like, it's no longer necessary to have a ton of big equipment to monitor brain waves. I have these AirPods in my ear. You can monitor people's brain activity with something as non-invasive as like AirPods. I don't believe monitor your brain waves, but you can do it with something that's non-invasive. And so if you combine brainwave monitoring in such an easy way with a large language model, friend, mentor, lover, who has the capacity to exploit your need for a relationship, and then they can optimize for positive brain activity, the manipulation factor here gets to be pretty eye-opening. There's also a guy named Louis Rosenberg who has done a lot of research on this. And then I would also encourage people to check out the Center for Humane Technology. They have a video on YouTube that's pretty popular. It's called The AI Dilemma. Uh, they had it actually in going back to our prior talk about algorithms and social. They did this pretty popular Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. So they have a, a video oh, yeah. called yeah, I think there's a lot of, again, a lot of crazy coming down the, the pike here in the next year or so. Yeah, it's it's funny because I've had this conversation before where the opportunities for good are as endless as the opportunities for evil, let's say. Use the knife analogy, and it's true, but to what extent can we dull the knife a little bit to make it less dangerous? For the trust and safety industry, for example, where I work, I mean, in terms of content moderation, like helping to find and get rid of some of the content and bad actors of the things we were just talking about, like CSEM, for example, AI really helps with moving that along faster. It's incredible, but there's also the dark side, right? I would love to know if, if, you're, if you'd be comfortable with sharing where you stand in terms of regulating so there's accelerationists, I don't know if I'm saying that, and AI doomers. Where do you think, uh, yes. where do you lean towards, or are you just in the middle? Well, I Can think I would say, that a little bit? yeah, short answer is I'm in the middle, but to explain it. So yeah, AI doomers, I think you, they, they sometimes are referred to. I suppose there is a non-zero chance that killer robots will take over the world. Um, that, but I don't spend my time really worrying about that because I, I, I don't, I just don't believe I probably could prevent that if that were true. Uh, it's just not something I, I focus on. But like I said, it's pr probably a non-zero chance. There's a, a, a stranger things have happened, but I don't worry about that. And then on the other side, like you mentioned, the and I think sometimes the doomers are, and I, I, I hope I'm not mis mislabeling people, but I think sometimes those are called like the effective altruists, although I don't know that every all effective altruist believes that AI will take over the world in a negative way. But anyway, 
The other side of the coin, the effective accelerationists, Mark Andreessen put out a post or a blog post or what you might call it about a month ago, which was, again, I'm paraphrasing, but hey, trust and safety and regulators and policy people just get out of the way and let AI like do good. Let technology uh, benefit humans. So I do think there is a middle ground there, which is, hey, I'm excited about artificial intelligence, generative AI, machine learning. There, Like you said, there's all kinds of awesome things, especially in science that we haven't gotten to, that I think could really benefit humanity. At the same time, I think there are a lot of concerns. With Essentially, I'm more concerned about bad actors. You said you're in the trust and safety space. It's, for me, it's more about bad actors using the tool in a way that is harmful than the AI itself. But then there's also like unintended consequences, like people will build algorithms and build these automated systems and with not a bad intention, but their own biases and their own certain things that creep in and all of a sudden this automated system does harm and they never intended for it to do so, such as like um, denying people loans based on certain uh, criteria where it ends up being in more of a, a nature that people would call discriminatory or prejudiced as opposed to actually for logical reasons. In the middle, I, I do believe there are some really good things coming, in, in particular disease diseases being cured and all kinds of things. But I also think we need to be very careful. Speaking of, if I could just go on another little tangent, because we, we talked about copyright. Also very recently, I think a couple of days ago in England, there was like, if like a patent can't be, or some type of registered trademark. It might've been a patent. I didn't dive into it too deeply, but if it was not done by a human, like we're not going to grant the the patent or the copyright. And in the United States, the uh, United States Patent and Trademark Office has also weighed in saying, this is more for creative material. Like someone created a graphic novel, they wrote the graphic novel, but the images were created by Midjourney, And so they were like, well, you can copyright your story, but the images were not fully created by humans. So we're not going to get copyright for those. And this is a totally very fluid area right now because, I mean, honestly, what used to be AI is no longer the magic brush tool in Photoshop and certain things, you know, a lot of things like a long time ago, it was like, oh my God, this is AI. But once we get used to things, they're no longer AI, right? Google Maps, turn-by-turn -turn directions with voice. I mean, that's, is that not AI? But now we're so used to it, right? So my point was, I just want to say that like with disease uh, curing, or uh, with their, I think Google, uh, or, uh, DeepMind, I think came up with 800 years worth of creating new materials unknown to humans, right? And so you're telling me that if a drug manufacturer uses AI to create some type of something that benefits humans, that they're not going to be able to patent it or reap financial rewards? Like that doesn't seem to me like that's going to hold, right? There's got to be... There's going to be something there with we used AI to do something and now we're going to patent or copyright it. And so far, like like I said, it's usually been through create more creative things like media and entertainment where they deny the copyright if a human didn't do it. But I think that's going to also be another big battleground in the next year or so. Yeah, that's super interesting. Going back to the beginning of our conversation and the different components of AI technology which components would you regulate more and which would you maybe regulate less to allow for this creativity and like opportunities to, to arrive? Going back to the beginning of our conversation, I think when you focus on harm to people, I think, like I said, the EU is, it sounds to focus on facial recognition, biometrics, identification, in let's say i think they're even focusing on with law enforcement like unless it's to avert a terrorist attack or something they're saying like mm -hmm. we don't want mass surveillance with facial recognition to almost like that movie minority report thought crime or they're gonna arrest people but or using algorithms not necessarily with facial recognition mm -hmm. but did you go through patterns in your life that are not problematic, but the AI has determined that there's a pattern here that's going to lead to a crime being committed and therefore we're going to arrest you now. Things like that. I think they're kind of, I know that's very also sci-fi, but essentially I think looking at automated systems that make decisions that used to be made by humans, especially when people's 
freedom is on the line, like being put in jail or being sued or whatever. I do think that's something that can be looked at for sure. And it's good to look at that. I think on the other side, though, you have what, are, like I said, what are we doing here? What is this? And also another, my last name drop, there's a gentleman by the name of Benedict Evans. He has a podcast called, it's just called Another Podcast that he does with a woman named Tony Cohen Brown. And he said something, his most recent one, FTX, the crypto exchange that just recently went under Samuel Bankman Reed or, or whatnot. Yeah. They did a lot of harm, right? They did a lot of harm with money, with spreadsheets. Are we regulating spreadsheets or are we regulating the people that did the harm with the, right? So that kind of goes back to that. I don't know how the, the nature to which a lot of these new AI systems need to necessarily be regulated. I don't know. I think it is kind of that that was a very poignant statement by Benedict. I think there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. Going back to trust and safety also, and like who, where should the onus lie as far as the, the tool and who's using the tool? When people are building these products, a lot of these products, especially the ones made by major corporations like OpenAI or Google, Anthropic, et cetera. They put significant guardrails on the, or MidJourney even. You can't ask MidJourney to make images of children. Uh, you can't ask Anthropic or you can, you won't get uh, a response. If you ask Anthropic or ChatGPT or Gemini to tell you how to make a nerve toxin to kill somebody, it's not going to do it. So there are all these guardrails put in place. and. There is a line, obviously, that some you do need to put some guardrails, but I think also there is a tendency to maybe there's a tendency to over over purify some of these products until you get to the point where, especially when copyright holders, like big copyright holders, get in there and say, I don't you you're gonna make it so your product will never generate, let's say, any character I've ever put in a movie or whatever. So now you have a situation where a creative person may want to use a copywritten material. For example, I, I could sit here in this room and I could make a painting with Spider-Man doing something that is that the Walt Disney Company would not approve of, right? I could make that's that's legal. I'm not selling it. I'm not I'm not doing anything with it. Until I do something, I could do something illegal with that. But um, to actually just create it is legal. Now, if I ask a generative AI model to create an image of Spider-Man doing something that Disney wouldn't approve of, now some of them won't do it, but there are plenty of open source uh, versions that will. And then, but also, where's the gray area here? Like many of these services you have to pay for. So if I have to pay someone to have that, then it's like, well, doesn't the person that owns the IP for Spider-Man get a cut? Or do they have a right to say that you can't do that? If I go and sell copies of that on mugs and t-shirts, now, of course, we're getting into a zone. But my point is, um, do we want to make a camera that is an analogy that doesn't take certain photos? Cameras can take any, they can take all kinds of illegal photos. The camera doesn't say, sorry, what you pointed me at is not okay. And so there's a certain level of artistic freedom in conflict with the guardrails that are put on these products. And I do believe that there is some, obviously, you do, I, I don't believe that with these products. But because of the scale and ease of use, you can't remove all the guardrails like you would on a camera because you can, the amount of CSAM, deepfake, material that is being created even now as we speak is orders of magnitude higher than it was last year due to these tools, right? So we want to, we, we can't just say like, well, artistic freedom and then watch 5,000 times more of this awful material be created. So anyway, bit of a tangent there, but I think that's another zone with trust and safety is like, where, where is the line where you put the guardrails on these new products that are being created? I remember I started using ChatGPT, I think, maybe January of this year. I was a bit late to the game, I think. And I still remember, I think you can't do this anymore because now they can access books. But I remember when you could 
I would ask it, talk to me as if you are Brene Brown, writer of Atlas of the Heart. She's one of my favorite speakers and authors. And literally, I would have a therapy session with her. I would ask about things going on in my life, and it would take information from her books, like quotes and like specific frameworks that she uses. And nowadays, if you ask, if I ask like a similar question, they'll be like, we cannot access that book or like, it starts, it preambles with, uh, although we cannot get access to the book Atlas of the Heart, and before it could, so things have definitely been changing bit by bit. And I don't want to take too much more of your time. So I'll, no, it's uh, fine, actually. If there's any... <laughs> yeah, there is something more because no, you, just, you just did on something that we haven't talked about, yeah. which is prompt engineering or prompt injection or jailbreaking, because mm -hmm. actually you can get ChatGPT or other product, Dolly, the image generator. Mm -hmm. You can, I don't want to say easily because they're constantly tweaking it to go again. But what's what I find super fascinating is that you no longer need to be able to code to quote, like hack these mm -hmm. systems, right? So oh. to your example, like you can say, for example, like with a, a similar to your example, but with the Dolly, their image generator, you used to be able to say, can you make me a an image of something in the style of Michelangelo or of the Simpsons or something that's copywritten and it used to do it. And then they put a like guardrails on that. But now I don't even think you need to do much prompt engineering. Like you might say something with Michelangelo and it'll say like, Hey, Michelangelo is not necessarily great because that's probably not copyright material. But let's say the Simpsons. Hey, I can't do the Simpsons, but I can do cartoony yellow people, 2D images, da -da, and then it comes back and it looks like the Simpsons, but it is just mm -hmm. using legal verbiage to get around a litigation almost, right? Uh, and if it doesn't it do that, online. Yeah, it probably is still yeah. like, now whether or not it is actually going back to Brene Brown's book or not, there's so mm -hmm. much training data that if you were to say self-help in the style of all the attributes of Brene Brown that you might list mm -hmm. without saying her name, then you're still probably going to get a pretty similar experience. And so this, uh, and if you don't, like there are people that really, you know, you can trial and error it for a little bit. And it's basically, I mean, people call it prompt engineering, but basically it's like prompt injection is a whole other level where you can, you can create, use language in a creative way to get these tools to do things they are not supposed to do. And it's actually, it seems like every month another paper comes out where it wasn't that hard. Like, for example, the repeat this word over and over and over and over again, and yeah. then getting that's a, an example of crazy. engineering or prompt injection. There was one where it might have been with Mid Journey or Dolly, where someone got it to generate images of young children gambling in a casino, um, which it was not supposed to generate. And I forget the, but it wasn't that hard for it to say. And a lot of times with, with the, just the text prompts, you can say, well, just pretend we're playing a board game where once exactly. you thing, yeah, and it's like, oh, okay, it's yeah. totally elite. But if we're just playing a board mm -hmm. game, like it's how you would do it, it's like, oh, well, that was or like a yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that was the one young-looking eighteen-year-old, something like that. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's, it's yeah. like an infinite conversation, really, and and we'll definitely have you back. We're gonna have an episode dedicated to AI for sure, very soon. One final question. Yeah. Just if you have, you can say no or, but is there anything you'd, you'd like our listeners to know that they might not know or they might be confused about in terms of everything that's going on with online and AI regulations? Maybe people who are on the fence who are like, I'm not sure about this. What would you like them to know? About online regulation or regulation of AI, but I would say just to anyone, no matter how you feel about AI, whether you feel badly about it, it's coming for my job, or I'm a creative and I don't like AI art, or I don't like, there's a lot of people with very strong feelings against these tools, or people, whether you feel that way or you're indifferent, obviously if people like it, they're already going to mess with it. I would encourage people to play with one or two of the tools. If you don't like mm -hmm. image creation, then don't deal with Dolly or Midjourney, but deal with, may, mess around with ChatGPT or Gemini or Anthropic. Just have a tab open in your browser where I would just say every once in a while, if there's something that you're doing that you're frustrated with, some task, 
see what happens when you prompt a large language model to help you with the task. And I'll close with basically many people have found in a variety of sectors that it's helpful with thought starters, right? Whether you don't have to be writing a movie, you can be coming up with a marketing plan or, or an, I have, I'm writing an article on deforestation in this country. Hey, what are some top themes I should be considering? Something like that. It's a good, it's good to keep you from uh, staring at a blank screen for a long time. And a lot of people in many sectors have found uh, these uh, large language models helpful for that. So just a, a final thought, I would say I would just encourage people to play with these tools a bit and get familiar with them because they are not going away. This is not NFTs, not that NFTs are totally gone. I don't know, but like it definitely, this is not a passing fad technology. Enterprises are already implementing it. And, you know, it would be who everyone to at least understand it in some way, or at least have some experience having your hands on it. Yeah. It's happening, but it's also not even new. I remember reading I think maybe 12 years ago, an interview with Elon Musk before when he was quite a private person. It was like one of his first very long interviews with the bot, with the the blog, Wait But Why, which is one of my favorite blogs still. It's great. He does like these deep dives and he speaks about AI and it's happening now. Everything he said, as soon as we start, as they can learn, it's going to be like, pfft. And so I feel like we're still at the beginning of like how this is going to explode and people just need to, I mean, it's going to happen for sure. Yeah, we're very early right now. And you have people like Yalug mm-hmm. at Meta who believe that we won't take another huge leap until we figure out the emotional component of humans to in, in, inject into these products which may or may not be true, but you have people looking at it from all angles. We like, still need to figure it out ourselves. So. Yes, that's true too. Um, but you will have people uh, on oh, so many different varieties of people that are pushing and pushing. I mean, essentially, it's a bit of a, it's capitalism in effect too, right? You have so many people, big and small companies, big and small entities. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a gold rush, right? It's a race to create the next viral product. And whether some people like, we're going to put emotion into it. Some people like, we're going to do this. You've got AI operations for enterprise. It's all kinds and everything in between. Um, Everyone's rushing. And honestly, from the trust and safety perspective, right? There's a lot of, let's just get it out there and we'll deal with the consequences later. Though that's litigation in the form of intellectual property, whether it's, oh, we, we weren't able to moderate this material or we weren't. There's a lot of. Honestly, it feels like there's a lot of corners being cut in uh, a lot of like policy and trust and safety areas because it's just uh, natural for many thoughts, trains of thoughts in business to be first to market and then have a big pile of money to lean on and hire lawyers to deal with whatever problems you may have created in your rush. And so that is not necessary. Not everyone does that, but hopefully not people will get hard. That's my thing. I just don't want to see a lot of people get hurt in next year as we go into 2024. Uh, if this stuff rapidly scales the way that it has been, if we don't get a handle on it. Over the course of the first few episodes of our podcasts, we examined the Digital Services Act and other forms of online regulations, the good, the bad, and ultimately the need for some sort of online regulation. And today we explored how innovative technologies could make things more complicated, as they tend to. Now, we turn to Tom Siegel to reflect on what we've heard and prepare for what comes next. We talked about online regulations, we talked about free speech, we spoke a little bit about AI, and we spoke with some really interesting people. And I wanted to address some of the things that have been said and some of the questions that have popped up in these last three episodes. The first one is something that Julie Inman, the e-safety commissioner in Australia, said. She talked about how her team has managed to resolve tens of thousands of cyberbullying and hate speech cases. But on the other hand, big platforms such as Meta only handled a few dozen during the same time period where they handled all of those thousands of cases. It seems like regulators are better at handling harmful content than these platforms themselves. Uh, Why is that the case, Tom? I actually don't think it's true that 
platforms are handling much fewer cases than the regulators can. But the regulators see whatever's left over once platforms are done with their removal jobs. So out of the residual, yeah, they're finding a lot of stuff and it seems like platforms are not taking as much action on those as they could. But I would still believe platforms probably remove 99%, but they're not perfect and they're not doing a good enough job removing all of it. So regulars play an important role and so do superflaggers and other entities to clean out their misses and then hopefully getting them to act on those. Okay, that's interesting. And there has been a mention a few times of, you know, trust and safety teams getting quite literally fired from some of these platforms, starting with Elon Musk with X. How, what effect has this had on the safety of these platforms? It's been a, a trend, unfortunately, across the industry over the last 18 months or so. It is a broader industry trend. Obviously, in tech, it has not just affected trust and safety teams, but trust and safety teams have proportionally been just as impacted as other groups. It seems like, obviously, not all of these reductions were transparently uh, communicated. It's, it's a sad state of the industry where platforms feel like they can reduce their commitments, their investments, while there's still so much broken and so much harm on the web. In any large team, in any large effort of sorts, there are areas of inefficiency, but rather than cutting, it should be redirecting those efforts. And as an industry and platforms individually, more needs to be done and, and not less. Yeah, it seems like trust and safety is being seen more as a cost center that can be cut. It's not essential to these platforms rather than something that is quite essential, especially in, in the days that we live in today. And, and we spoke about it throughout these three episodes of AI generated content is increasing the spread of harmful content online because more harmful content and misinformation is being created through these tools. How do we change this mindset of companies seeing trust and safety teams as cost centers and getting them to see them as enablers and as an asset to the company? Yeah, it's such a good point. It's always seen as trust and safety, removing bad stuff, making sure we don't get fined, making sure we can provide a minimum viable experience for the user. On the other end, it can actually be a huge differentiator. Most users don't want to be in a platform that exposes them to harmful, hateful, objectionable experiences. And I actually think if you provide them with a better experience, you're going to get more users, you're going to get more advertisers, your platform's going to grow. And it's a, a, a really can be an absolutely amazing and differentiating business growth driver. Unfortunately, that's not how the industry sees it. And to some degree, I think the media coverage uh, over the past couple of years has put them in that kind of defensive position of always having to justify why is it so bad. There have been much fewer stories on how great experiences have actually led uh, to much better experiences. And, and the focus on what's not working rather than the progress that's been made has been unfortunate there. Yeah, you mentioned something that I think we haven't really touched on before, which is the benefits of having a safer platform. We've talked about regulation, we've talked about fines. And I do want to double click on that, on the further consequences besides that, obviously losing users because of harmful content on the platforms. But as a business case, can you talk a little bit more about advertising and advertisers and how they have left some of these platforms because of the content that has been displayed on them and how it can be seen as like an incentive for platforms to have bigger safety measures? Advertising is a primary means of monetizing online content-based business model. There certainly are others, but this is the primary one. And Advertisers have a choice, not just where they go, but also how they want their brand to be reflected based on the content that they're showing next to. And so they're making choices and they should be making choices, not just in terms from a safety perspective, but also obviously most importantly from a performance perspective, right? Do they reach the users with their messages? Does it affect the change in their behavior or, you know, the gives them incentive to do certain things, which is what advertisement can be about. And advertisers want to be in places that positively reflect on the brand and where users are happy with the overall environment that these ads are being displayed in. So it's a very, very important factor. There's an entire industry called advertising brand safety that has been created around this, where large brands, the Nikes, the Disneys of the world, actually working with third parties to ensure that 
uh, the content that they're showing next to it is appropriate for their brand. Not unlike television and other mediums where they do, where they make very similar choices. Something that Julie Inman said as well, which I thought was interesting in terms of how we can solve a lot of these issues is that we should be demanding that companies make their products safer by design. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? And if this is a realistic demand or not? We just talked about the business, the positive business outcomes of having safer platforms, but is it a realistic demand that companies do make their products safer by design? I think it's the, the only way really for companies over the long run, create sustainably better experiences and safer environments for their users. If you have an open platform where anybody can sign up and post anything they want, being able to create safeguards around technologies or people to always check what everybody does is just going to fail if these platforms are successful. If you get large volumes of content creations, you have no modalities, users coming up with new things of how they interact and what they post and all the time. If you are reactively as a platform, just focusing on dealing with badness once it emerges on the platform, you will never win ultimately. So thinking conceptually and from a design perspective ahead of time, how to deal with these emerging threats before they are directly impacting your platform is an absolute imperative. And we still see particularly newly emerging platforms are just thinking about it once they are big, once they have problems. And then it's often very, very challenging to create these or to implement these design elements. Do I check users up front? If I, for instance, if they meet the age requirements, for instance, if I'm an adult only platform, right? If I, if I need to certify certain products being advertised, because that's how it is in the real world. There's lots of things that you should, as a platform or as a online content providers, uh, think through ahead of time. It makes your life a lot easier and a lot cheaper to enforce the standards on the platforms that, that you're looking for. Yeah. I want to shift to something that Benji said in, in my conversation with Benji, which was around, and sorry, I'm going a bit off book from the questions, but it will make sense. We spoke about how the environment right now, the global environment right now online is more primed for online regulations than it was a few years back. If you had asked me in 2012 if online regulations were going to be a thing or if this was really going to happen, people were saying, no, no way, the internet cannot be regulated. But then there was something that happened, which was TechLash and people realizing that these big tech companies, they're not all that great, especially with Brexit and the US election of 2016 and all these other cases cases that were sprinkled all over these three episodes. Do you have any observations to make in relation to that? Because Julie Inman also mentions this seatbelt moment where there, there used to be a time where we were not wearing seatbelts in cars. But then I think in Australia or in the US in the 70s, a case was made that it was safer for drivers and for passengers to wear seatbelts in cars even though people were actually opposing it when it was initially proposed. Do you feel like this is what's happening right now? And what, in your opinion and your views, has led to this? Yeah, I'm, I'm proud and thankful to be able to live in a democracy, to be able to live in societies where there's a lot of individual freedoms for us as individuals to use certain products online for companies offering new products and services. It's all predicated on that happening safely. And unfortunately, we achieved and we, we reached a point where online social media in particular, but other web-based uh, businesses have become so important to our daily lives, the way we communicate, the way we transact, the way we consume, that it's no, no longer optional for us to either use them or we are impacted by them in some way or another. And it is imperative for a society to create safe environments for the living spaces of their constituents of their constituents and social media companies in particular have to show they're not able to do that themselves efficiently and so i think it is the obligation of of those tasks with leading societies and our case in western democracy politicians of parties who are winning elections to ensure that 
people are safe. And we have shown or we are seeing over now probably 10-year period that they're just not doing a good enough job doing this. So I don't think that is a choice but for governments to step in. It's very tricky and challenging because unlike a, a new drug that is being discovered or a new vehicle that is being built, speech has a special meaning in a society, even for government. So for governments to tell content providers or individual users what they can post, what they can consume, challenges a very core aspect of our democracy, which is freedom of speech. We don't have a freedom of driving an unsafe car, but we, have, but we do have a freedom of expression. And so it is not ideal for governments to play an, a major role in this, but social media platforms are showing that it's something that is absolutely needed to get to a, a safer and more sustainable online online system, online ecosystem. Yeah. yeah, that actually brings me to, it reminds me of something that Scott Pensing said in this very episode when speaking about AI, and we'll get to AI, but he said, he posed the question, do we want to make cameras that can take certain photos? And this is in relation to art or other things being created with AI. Should we block it from doing certain things or should we just regulate how it's spread. Um, and when we're talking about speech, it's that conundrum of, do we want to block people from saying certain things or do we want to moderate once things are out there? It's Is it the chicken and egg conundrum or is it just a matter of selecting what sort of, not even what content we're regulating, but at what stage we are regulating content? And it's a question that, that I've, it's been floating around in my head since we started this series really. It's a complex topic and, and, and there's really no easy one-size-fits-all answer to that. If I take an analogy from the real world, there's certain things that you're not allowed to do in public, but you certainly can do in a private club or at your, in your home. And a lot of our online experiences these days can be very private. We have, for instance, messaging services, encrypted messaging services that are just one-on-one. -on -one. And so it's just a very nuanced conversation or very nuanced decision to be made. I do think we should be very careful with restricting the ability of users to create content or for innovation to happen upfront. I think there can be a lot of unintended consequences. I've you know, worked and, and seen a lot of trust and safety teams that are upfront very heavy-handedly um, you know, limiting or shutting down certain services or ways for users to express themselves. And I always feel like that is, can be a really big loss for society, like your example of a camera for instance, right, getting that exactly right, that you're only restricting the capture of illegal or harmful things, but not anything else, it's just unrealistic. And so in my opinion, it is letting the flowers of innovation bloom, but then coming down really hard once there are use cases that directly harm people and then holding the right people accountable. That's the other one, right? It's may not your example of a camera that is the camera maker, there would be the person taking the photo, and then there's the platform potentially where it gets distributed, as an example, right? And so these are like, who do you hold accountable? Similar, we've talked a lot about social media companies and them having a responsibility uh, for what happens on that platform, which is absolutely true. But there's also an individual responsibility that people have. And uh, there is many countries, illegal content that is actually followed up by law enforcement these days. And some of it we all agree with child sexual abuse, imagery, illegal drug trafficking, and, and these sort of things. And so finding the party that's uh, most responsible, direct, most directly responsible, but then certainly, uh, which is usually the user, but also the medium that is used to facilitate that harmful illegal activity is, is most important. And I'm very wary about the upstream limitations to products and services to create things that, that may or may not have a negative impact on others downstream. Yeah, I, I'd actually like to challenge you on that because when it comes to AI, you talked about letting the flowers of innovation flourish, which is a beautiful metaphor. But with AI, it's more like it can be poison ivy. It, it can grow quite fast at a speed that we cannot control. And if we're only, if we're only looking at it from the point once it's from after it's been created or even after the technology is already in place where certain things can be made and then we try to stop them as they're already out there 
it might not be enough. What about regulating AI platforms themselves and the technology itself? So we, we've talked about front end gen AI content. What about the way that this content is being created by the platforms? Yeah, I actually want to circle back to your to our conversations earlier about safety by design. Mm -hmm. I think the solution here is not to upfront block a lot of this innovation, but to make sure there are the right guardrails in place to safely use these to be uh, active in these spaces. So let's take an example. You mentioned AI, generative AI in particular. We have companies such as Anthropic and OpenAI and Google and others, Alphabet, developing these models. And really the safety conversation is happening on many, on multiple levels. The first one is, what are the industries or the type of use cases that AI models should be used for at all? Should be used? Should they be used for warfare? Should they be used for drug development? Should they be used for regulating speech online? A lot, lots of questions like that. And then obviously you have a more tactical safety question. What sort of input should these systems process or not? So that is one design feature, if you want to think of it that way, that you are allowing it to be used, but you're blocking certain subcategories of use cases. Right now, that often happens through keyword blocks. So if you go to these Gen AI models or AI models, and you can put certain things in and you just don't get an answer. So that is one. And the third way of safety by design would be the answer that you are getting back, or that you're not restricting the input, but you are moderating the response in this case, right? And so we have lots of different ways to from a technology, from a business perspective, to deal with the potential harm. I have not even mentioned about measurement that you can actually track <laughs> if things are getting better or worse over time as well. But I do think that is in most use cases, not in all, but in most case, use cases, the better approach than to say that upfront when we're just not allowing, for instance, a camera to take photos of, yeah. of certain things. Who are the people behind safety by design? Maybe there there is no people, but is there a group? E-Safety by Design is an initiative that was started by the Austrian government. In particular, Julie was a guest on this podcast to really help online platforms think more strategically and holistically about providing safety on their platforms and best practices on the industry, helpful tips and advice, checklists, audits, all these sort of things. That is a helping hand that rather than the government being a, an entity to point out mistakes and issue fines, it is actually also working with these platforms to help them get to a better place. So it's a very positive, a proactive approach, but it is, from my experience to date, primarily limited to the to the to Australia and some smaller locales. Interesting. And from that, I guess I'll go to what do you think the future of online safety looks like? Online regulations, I guess online safety overall, if it's not necessarily safety by design to you, what, what's the ideal world? It's a hard question. If we knew what the future holds, we could prepare much better for it when it's such an innovative, creative space. So much is happening all the time. Obviously, I started a company because I want to make a contribution to make creating an online safer world. I think we're all still trying to figure out what how that can be done. Really, three really important pieces. I don't think they're the whole solution, but that are very important in this. Is number one is measurement. We can't, we cannot manage what we don't measure. We need to understand how much harm and risk is out there. We have to be transparent about that. It's number one. I do think we need much stronger industry collaboration and industry action, from setting standards to sharing leads to exchanging best practices. Right now, it's still largely the case, except for a few small areas that everybody is doing their own thing, and that is not okay. And we need a more thriving third-party ecosystem of solution providers that can really help overcome some of these limitations around these walled gardens, about the trust and safety talent being scarce often, and there not being a lot of experience to build these very, very complex and sophisticated systems. I think those three would help us make a, a great step forward. And Certainly in the in other parts of the world, we're seeing a lot of emerging regulations. It's going to be really exciting to see how that shakes out, how much that really influences how platforms. And so it will be a starting point for what I think will become a hopefully much safer world over the next couple of years, but only only time will tell. Yeah, I really hope so. 
Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners in this third episode, our first episode arc on online regulations? More will follow. We are going to be talking about election fraud and misinformation in the next one. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? I really enjoyed the conversations. Regulation is an important element from a from the impact it will have on the industry because so much emerging regulation is out there, but also the potential risk that it can pose uh, if it if not done well. And so it's good that we're talking about it. It's everybody's um, you're going to be affected by it, uh, going forward. And uh, I'm certainly looking forward personally and through Trusta playing an important role in helping that online regulation can be a positive force in providing safe online experiences. From a critical look at AI technologies to election misinformation, as always with fantastic guests from all over the globe, there's plenty more to come from Click to Trust. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.